Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast, a historical look at early Christianity and Christian literature. We're going on to a second episode on Mark's Gospel here. In the previous episode, we covered the first half of Mark's Gospel. In this episode, we continue on in the latter half of Mark's Gospel, where we have a key turning point in which Jesus asks his disciples, who do you think I am? And basically, identity and who Jesus is is central to the whole plot of Mark's Gospel. The author of Mark's Gospel has deliberately made it that this is a secret through most of the narrative. And we're coming now to the key turning point at which it seems that some characters in the storyline are actually identifying who Jesus is. However, there's a little bit of disappointment that follows that. We then move on and work our way through the final chapters in which there's three main points at which Jesus' identity comes to the fore, culminating in a Gentile, clearly identifying who Jesus is in the narrative. I hope you enjoy this podcast. If you'd like to read more about early Christianity and other religions in the ancient Mediterranean world, do feel free to browse my website at philipharland.com. Before we get to that crucial middle point, I want to talk about a couple of things that happen in chapters 7 and following. 7 and 8 are a series of conflicts again. Remember that back in chapters 2 to 3, Mark had grouped together a series of conflicts to show that there was going to be the Pharisees and Herodians out to get Jesus. And here again in chapters 7 to 8, we have a variety of things, but we have quite a few stories of conflicts with the institutional authorities that are ultimately going to lead to Jesus' death. And that's the focal point of the whole story in the end, is Jesus' death, as we know. But in this section, there's a couple of things I really want to draw your attention to that are important. First is, this section not only has conflicts with Judean authorities, it also has reception by Gentiles. Stories of Gentiles receiving Jesus and stories of Judean authorities rejecting Jesus. And this seems to be a key point to be made in this section. And it's once again drawing your attention to this Gentile aspect of Mark's Gospel. The positive portrayal of Gentiles, positive is a relative term, you'll soon see what I mean by that, but the positive portrayal of Gentiles accepting Jesus at least, even if he calls them dogs, but they accept Jesus and the Judean institutional authorities reject Jesus. Let's look at the one where Jesus calls a Gentile a dog, which you would think is a bad thing. But in the end, the Gentiles portrayed in the story as having faith in a way that the Judean authorities do not. And this is the contrast that is going on in this section of Mark's Gospel. Chapter 7, verse 24 and following. From there he went out and went away to the region of Tyre. So we're back on the coast of Syria, which is a Gentile country. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Gentiles in this scenario here are dogs. Jesus calls Gentiles dogs. But she answered him. She came back with a smart comeback. Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She acknowledged, I'm only a dog, but even dogs deserve to be fed. Then he said to her, for saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. So the faith factor is there. 
There's a character in the story, and here it's a Gentile who has faith. So that's one of the Gentiles being healed, and Gentiles with faith that you'll find in Mark's Gospel. There's quite a few of them, Gentiles with faith, including a Roman centurion we're going to get to later on in the story. The thing I want to point out to before we get to the core of the story, the core of the story is at the end of chapter 8, but in earlier in chapter 8, we have a repeat in Mark's Gospel, a repeat, so to speak. Earlier, we had the feeding of the 5,000. Mark has two feeding of thousands in his story, and it serves to underline something he's been trying to emphasize about Jesus and the disciples. In this second feeding of thousands, remember the disciples were there the first time around when the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples actually were there, saw Jesus produce all this food, saw all kinds of baskets of bread gathered at the end, that there was all kinds of leftovers. They still did not understand. Remember, that was a statement that Mark made about the disciples back in the earlier feeding of the 5,000. Now we have feeding of thousands again. That's beginning of chapter 8. And the disciples say this in response to Jesus saying, there's a lot of people here, we should try and feed them. They say, how can one feed these people with bread here in the desert? They don't get it, do they? How many times is Jesus going to have to feed thousands in the narrative for the characters in the narrative, the disciples, to get it through their thick skull that Jesus can do stuff like that? And then to get it through their thick skull that the, the fact that Jesus can do those things points to who he is. They never do. Look what happens at the end of this episode, verse 17 and following. And becoming aware of the disciples debating what this all means, Jesus said to them, to his disciples, remember, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? They said to him, 12. So they do remember. These guys are thick-skulled. That's what Mark's trying to portray them as. They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, seven. Then he said to them, do you not yet understand? I'm getting tired of this. Jesus is getting tired of it. Remember the whole way in which Mark has been portraying this is Jesus deliberately teaches secretly to the public in a way that they won't understand. The only hope is that his disciples will understand and they never understand. Here's where we get to the core turn in the story. And at this core turn, chapter 8, verse 27 to 9, 10, there is hope where it suddenly seems the disciples are understanding who Jesus is. But then it's, there's a little twist to the hope as well, though. Look at this. Chapter, 27, uh, chapter 8, verse 27 and following. Right after that feeding, second feeding of the thousands. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? We know that a biography is all about who the person is. And here in the narrative, sometimes it's explicitly people talking about who is Jesus. So the issue of who is Jesus is the key topic of the whole thing, understandably for a biography. And here Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And he's really trying to solicit from his disciples, who do you think I am? Are you starting to get it? And they answered him, John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist had been killed. And there's this idea that Jesus may be the return. Remember the typological thinking the Judeans have in the first century and the Gentiles have. Some answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah. Typological thinking. And still others, one of the prophets. These are things of who Jesus is. The Gospels are all about, all about identity. And here in the story itself, there are debates among the characters about who Jesus is. Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Here's the moment of a glimpse of light that's going to soon be gone. P. 
Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. Finally, and that has implication that he's the son of God and that therefore he had all his healing authority and his teaching authority derives from that. Finally, a character in the story, namely one of the disciples, seems to have got it. And what does Jesus say? He sternly orders him not to tell anyone about it. Then Jesus suddenly starts talking about the Son of Man. Up to this point in Mark, he has never repeatedly used this phrase. And so this is the turning point in the narrative where Jesus starts to talk about himself as the Son of Man who will suffer. And he'll continually talk about the Son of Man must suffer throughout the rest of the narrative. And here's where it first occurs. Verse 31, then he began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and, he, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So he blatantly says to them now, the Son of Man must die and be killed and be raised again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter rebuking Jesus for what he's just said. It's the first time they're hearing it. There was a momentary glimpse of light, so Jesus then reveals to them who he, once they are starting to understand seemingly, he reveals who he is and starts talking about what it means. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. The disciple for a moment who seemed to give hope that someone among the disciples would know who Jesus is, turns out to be one of the demonic forces in this incident, who's trying to stop Jesus from accomplishing his mission. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Mark has this teaching that he gets through in the story of Jesus of needing to follow Jesus in that suffering sort of way. But that's the turning point in the story. It seemed like someone finally got it, but they don't really. Because the rest of the way through, the disciples continue to make all kinds of blunders and still don't understand. I want to skim ahead here and make sure we get to some key points now. Son of Man betrayed, and, and they still don't understand when he talks about that again with them in chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. Just blatantly, Mark, the narrator, tells us, but the disciples did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. This next whole section, from chapter 9, verse 11, to chapter 12, are all about the impending crisis and suffering in Judea. Because at the turning point in the middle, it starts to talk about that Jesus reveals what is about to happen. He's going to suffer. And everything from that point in the story on accelerates to the suffering, accelerates to the execution. Accelerated by more tensions with authorities. By Jesus healing in a way that draws attention to what he's done. And more and more trouble for Jesus that's leading ultimately to his execution. And just before chapter 13, you have the final week before the execution. There's something in that section from 9 to 10 that I wanted to draw your attention to that further underlines the portrayal of the disciples as a bunch of duds. We're in chapter 9, verses 30 and following, and then the disciples don't understand right after that, underlining how much they don't understand what it's all about. You have this other story. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was, Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? So some of the disciples were with Jesus. He heard a couple of them arguing, but didn't know what it was about. But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another, who was the greatest? Am I the greatest? No, I'm the greatest. These are the most educated in Jesus' teaching disciples. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. This is another key element in the teaching of Jesus as portrayed by Mark. This reversal idea. 
that if you want to be gr the great should be servant. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. The point here is the disciples definitely don't get it. They think the rule of God is about whether they're going to be in charge, whether they're the greatest, and therefore whether they'll be in a good position in, in the, the setup that Jesus is going to have. Let's look now at chapter 13 briefly before we get into the Passion narrative. Chapter 13 is a collection of teachings of Jesus associated with the temple and associated with anticipation of something happening in Jerusalem. As I argued earlier on, this chapter is also used by most scholars as indication of this gospel being written, either the temple's going to be destroyed or just after it's been destroyed. In the way that it's talked about, in the language it is used, points towards that. So here's where you have an important teaching of Jesus, trying to understand the importance of the teachings of Jesus as Mark portrays them so that we can understand Mark's story of Jesus. But what I want to point out to you is the function of Mark relating this prediction of Jesus about the destruction of the temple is important subsequently in Mark's gospel. See in the beginning of chapter 13. So they're in Jerusalem and he came out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, look teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. The reason that saying is important in Mark is because when you get to the trial narrative in Mark, this comes up over and over again as an accusation against Jesus as a reason why he should be executed, that he said that the temple would be destroyed. Or the way they put it in the trial narrative, that he said he would destroy the temple. Now, this is important for Mark's gospel here in this chapter because it's all about Jesus' predictions of the end times. It's an apocalyptic section. In fact, some scholars label it the little apocalypse. But here it's all about Jesus' teachings about the imminent end and portraying Jesus as an apocalyptic teacher who believes the end is near, very near. And you have talk of material from Daniel in chapter 13. Daniel was written, you guys remember, in the Maccabean period. Remember the Maccabees back in the 160s BCE? Who, at that time, there was a desolation of the temple, where an altar was set up in the temple, and then the Maccabees revolted and cleansed the temple, and that's what Hanukkah is all about. Feast of Lights is about the cleansing of the temple and getting rid of the altar. In Daniel, that altar, Daniel's written in contemporary to that, in that book of Daniel, that altar is labeled the desolating sacrilege, or the abomination that desolates. There's different ways of translating it. In Mark, we have that referred to. So in verse 14, Jesus is portrayed as teaching, When you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to stand, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must not go down or enter the house to take anything away. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not be in winter. For in those days there will be suffering, such as has not been from the beginning of creation, that God created until now. No, never will be. Mark portrays Jesus as a very apocalyptic figure, expecting the end any moment. There's debate among scholars about whether historical Jesus is or is not an apocalyptic teacher. And we'll get to that later on, but I'll just uh, at least mention that debate. This whole section is about all the things that are going to happen as signs of the end, and that the end is imminent. In fact, in, in this gospel, Jesus is portrayed as saying that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
And remember that the way it's portrayed in Mark is that the destruction of the temple is part of that final intervention of God. There is another little snippet here that I want to point to in chapter 13 that's important for the low Christology of Mark. It illustrates something that's confirmed by a lot of other evidence, namely the very human Jesus, who is considered a son of God by God, and who is sent on a mission to help bring about the rule of God, but that nonetheless is very human. Talking about the fig tree earlier in the narrative, he cursed a fig tree and it died. And Jesus says, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. So there'll be a lot of signs and then the end will come. However, he goes on to say this, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven, the angels don't know when the final intervention of God will happen, nor the son. I don't know, is what Jesus is saying, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. So this is an element of the low Christology of Jesus. Whereas when we get to John's gospel to contrast, we'll have a Jesus that knows just about everything about absolutely everything. Very high Christology. Let's look at the key points in the Passion narrative now, where finally the identity of Jesus comes to the fore. Up to this point in the narrative, there's been secrecy, and Jesus has been explicitly secret about who he is. The identity, though, of Jesus, which is the central point of Mark, comes to the fore in the trial narrative, where finally other characters in the story are told. We knew right from the first sentence, as readers, but finally other characters in the story not only are told who he is, but sometimes they know who he is. They figure it out, and they state exactly who he is. There's three key points in the trial narrative that I want to draw your attention to. First of all, Jesus is arrested, betrayed by Judas, arrested, and brought before the high priest and some of the priests that organized the temple. And there's a little mini trial there. So chapter 14, verses 62 and following, I want to point your attention to. This is where they accuse him of saying he'll destroy the temple. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But he was silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? And we know that in Mark's gospel, Messiah implies son of God. It also implies person who's bringing about the rule of God on behalf of God. It implies the son of man who's going to suffer. But here, the institutional authorities ask Jesus. The Jesus who's always said, don't tell anyone who I am. The high priest asks who he is. Are you the Messiah? The son of the blessed one, the son of God. Jesus said, this isn't what we expect from a Mark and Jesus. I am in an institutional context. This is a moment that's important for Mark's gospel. Jesus says, I am the Holy One of God publicly. I am the Messiah. One of the revelations that's been waited for throughout this whole storyline, that you as readers have been in tension about the fact that no one knows this, and now it's all coming out in the open. Look at the next one. The next trial is before the Roman governor, Pilate, chapter 15. This one's a little more subtle. It's not quite as blatant. But I would say to you that Jesus' answer is a yes. Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, you say so. My interpretation of this is that this is a yes, especially in line with some of the other ones we're looking at. Then look at the, the ultimate one, in a way, from Mark's Gospels in chapter 15, verse 39. Now Jesus has gone on trial, he's been before the high priest, brought before Pilate. 
Pilate sort of ambiguous about whether what to do with him. He decides to offer to let him go if people want to let him go. The crowds supposedly call out for Jesus to be executed. Jesus is executed and put up on a cross as the typical way of executing criminals alongside of two bandits. And he's on the cross at this point, dying. And people are mocking him. You said you were going to destroy the temple. What about that? That issue of Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple comes up in the tri trial narratives and it's still happening when he's up on the cross. But here's the point I want to really draw your attention to. And this is really the culmination of the identity of Jesus in Mark's gospel. And it's a Gentile who openly proclaims and understands who Jesus is in a way that no other character in the whole story has. It's a Gentile. Sure, when Jesus was before the high priest, the high priest asked whether he was the Messiah, the Holy One of God, and Jesus answered yes. But it wasn't the high priest saying, you're the Holy One, the Son of God. He was actually saying, are you claiming to be? And then Jesus said yes. Here it's someone recognizing who he is and saying who he is. And it's a Gentile. It's a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier. Verse 33 of chapter 15. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Here's one of those Aramaic phrases. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. This is a critical point in the whole narrative. No one in the entire narrative has ever identified Jesus in this way with such confidence. We as readers knew from sentence one that Jesus was the son of God. Every character in the narrative doesn't know it except for the demons. Here, a Gentile, at the climax of the story, identifying Jesus as the Son of God. This overall portrayal of Jesus that we're seeing as an authoritative teacher and healer that originates from the fact that he is the Son of God, who is also the Son of Man who has to suffer, and that his dying is integral to his function. Ultimately, we find out in the next chapter, he's raised from the dead, that God raises his Son from the dead, is central to this whole gospel's portrayal of Jesus the suffering son of God, whose identity is kept hidden till the critical point. The audience, who is Gentile, is going to identify well with a Gentile being the only one in the entire story of Jesus who knows who Jesus is. Look at the way that this gospel ends. It talks about the women going to the grave. He, Jesus dies, he's put in a tomb. Uh, they go to the grave to do what is usual and put the different spices in that to preserve the body until the, bone, until the flesh is gone and then they take the bones and put it in the bone box usually. So they're doing the usual customs on how to treat the body after death. They go there and Jesus is gone. And a, a figure is there who says he has been raised. And the whole gospel ends in a very weird way. So the women went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The whole gospel ends with this hope that somehow that figure has been raised from the dead, and yet ends in a very strange way. They're afraid, and they're afraid to say anything about what they've seen. Let me conclude here with a few more observations, pulling together some of what we've been talking about today, about Mark's gospel, and giving a little bit of an indication of the community behind Mark's gospel. 
a couple things just to mention that I've been underlining throughout. Jesus as a suffering son of man is central to Mark's Christology. And this, we have a low Christology, a very human Jesus. In fact, I was going to point out to you places where Jesus cries, where Jesus is hungry, where Jesus feels compassion. He's a feeling human being in the narrative. Discipleship is central. Even though disciples are portrayed as blundering idiots, ultimately the author wants you to learn from that mistake and have faith like the other characters in the story who believe Jesus will be able to do what he says he's going to do. Finally, we're seeing with Mark's gospel a Gentile expression about who Jesus is. Probably written by a Gentile for a Gentile audience. Maybe aligned more with Pauline Christianity compared to the other gospel portraits we will see. We know that Paul was all about the Gentiles being included. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this second series in the podcast is my own remix of portions of What You Are from the album Without Zero by Joie. This is copyright 2007 Real World Records and it's used with permission under a Creative Commons type license.